you have your copies of the Word of God, we're going to continue through Acts. And we're going to talk about how oftentimes we kind of complicate the message and the goal and the mission of the church from the simple gospel to seeking to market it in such a way that the message may get lost. We're going to pick up in verse 17, or not, verse 1 of chapter 17, and it says this. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, which is near Caledonia, and no one ever wanted to go there. No, I'm joking. Those are for my Caledonia friends. They came to Thessalonica, where, they were, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to the Jews first. He went to them. And for three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with large numbers of of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women, seeing that their ranks were being purged by this new thing called Christianity. The Jews became jealous, taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city into a, an uproar. Some of your, your translations will say, started a riot in the city. And, and they attacked the house of Jason. They were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting in this riot and this mob, these men have upset the world and have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And, all of, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Because if there's one thing we all know, is that devout Jews really value Caesar, Amen? Mm. They even say there is no other king except for Christ, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason, bail, if you will, a financial deposit, likely to promise that Paul and Silas will leave Thessalonica, and if they don't, you're going to lose this money, and if they do, we'll return this money. They received a pledge from Jason and the others, and they released them. And the brother immediately sent Paul and Silas away, would like to get their pledge back, by night into Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews there. With that being said, let's ask God's blessing. We'll walk through this together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you. Ask that you would give me the clarity of thought, that you would help me to remember what I studied. Father, I prepared hard for this moment. Your word is perfect. It is without error. And it is life-changing. Help me not to mess that up. I confess my sins again in front of my church family. Lord, I pray that as always, 
your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. I pray that we would we would hunger and thirst for you more and more. Pray that we would know you better. And so, Father, I pray these things, and I ask these things in your Son's precious and holy name. And if you're with me this morning, say amen. Commitment. Commitment. It's quite possibly one of the most avoided things in our culture today. Whether in the secular world or, truth be told, even within the church, I know I have seen it in my own life and maybe you have seen it in your life as well. And I can kind of personify this, if you will, by just ask someone if they have plans this weekend and see how their answer goes. Now, many of you will probably try this afterwards and just for fun, but I was listening to a young couple not too long ago that I know rather well, and they were being invited over to someone else's house for a get-together. And they said to those people, they said to that person, well, thank you for that invitation. Is it okay for us to get back to you later this week? Now, knowing the couple, I said to them, hey, may I I ask you a question? By the way, if I ever come up to you and say, may I ask you a question, run, all right? Run for the hills. Now, I'm teasing. And they said, sure, yeah, absolutely. And I said, do you have plans this weekend? And they said, no, not yet. And I said, well, why then did you not accept the invitation that was just given to you? And they said, oh, that's easy. We never make commitments to anything just in case something better were to pop up in between now and then. Now, we all know what that feels like in our hearts and minds. Did you know that according to the Gallup poll taken in 1999-ish, all right, fewer than 10% of evangelical Christians could be called deeply committed. After all, something better might pop up. Where commitment to Christ is intended up until the point that something more attractive may be introduced. Christ is our Lord as long as our hobbies are not affected. The Bible is His Word as long as we don't have to live it. Jesus has authority over all things except maybe our our time, our money, our life, our body, our heart, and our mind. But other than that, He is the authority. Basically, He is authority of everything other than what? Ourselves. But other than that, we are committed to Christ. I think oftentimes we approach our walk to Christ the same way this young couple did with their daytimer. We are ready to commit to Christ if something more enjoyable or precious does not present itself. So with that in mind, I want you to hear one verse this morning, and here it is. If anyone is to call themselves a child of God, if anyone is to come after me, if anyone is to go through the narrow door, let them deny themselves and take up the cross and follow him. So today we will look at what commitment looks like in our lives, in our church, and in our world. So with that, let's set the stage of the context here. Now, it says right here, now, when they had traveled through the first city with the letter A and the second city with the letter A, they came to Thessalonica. Now, this is kind of just a roundabout way of saying that it took three days to get to Thessalonica. 
And they stopped each evening in, in the first city, and then they stopped, stopped the second evening in the second city until finally on the third day they arrived in Thessalonica. Now, it's interesting here, there's no indication mentioned that they spent any time in the first two cities. No indication that they were sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, they may have did it while they were there briefly, but it was not their primary location. So the question rises, why? Why not spend some time in these cities? After all, next week they're going to go to Berea, which literally means out of the way in many ways. It's a, it's a podunk town that no one really ever went to. Why not share the gospel in day one and two of those cities? Well, Luke gives us the answer right here in front of our nose when he says this, and there was a synagogue of the Jews there. Now, it is likely this is the first place they found a synagogue for the Jews. After all, we know in Philippi there wasn't one. That's why they went down to the river where, according to the Mishnah, they would expect Jewish people to be praying, and they found Lydia and her cohorts around with her. So Philippi didn't have one. So finally, which is Paul's desire, is to start with the Jews and then move to the Gentiles. He heads to Thessalonica, who has a synagogue. Now, Thessalonica's population is estimated, depending on which commentary you read or which theologian you read, somewhere between 100 and 200,000 people in the city proper. Roughly the size, give or take, of Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is a very large place in population. And the, it is the first place, all right, that Paul, let's see here, and the first place that Paul went was to the Jews. Now, remember here the subject that we're kind of looking at here as our primary thought is that of commitment. Commitment. And it says this, for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them. Commitment to Jesus Christ requires faithfulness. Let me say this another way. For three consecutive weeks, for three consecutive weeks in the city of Thessalonica, including the worship time at the synagogue on the Sabbath, Paul was committed to the gospel, of communicating the gospel. And it says here that he reasoned with them from scriptures and he explained giving evidence. Giving evidence of what? We'll talk about that in a moment, but giving giving evidence that Jesus Christ had to suffer and be raised from the dead. And he went to the Old Testament scriptures because that's what they had. And he showed them, he laid them out side by side who Jesus Christ was from the scriptures. Now I want to focus on the words reasoning and explaining the scriptures. The first word reasoning means to have a dialogue to have discussion with them, to have a give-or-take conversation where, where he's asking questions and they're answering and vice, vice versa. This is not quite like what we're doing here today where I deliver a sermon and for the most part you just listen and decide whether or not you agree with it, all right? This is a discussion that he had, not only in the synagogue, but he brought it out on Sunday and Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday, and then for three weeks back to the synagogue on the Sabbath, he died dialogued and had conversations with them. Now the word explaining means to open and make it understandable. He likely went to places like Psalms chapter 22 where it gives a very clear uh, description of the misery that Jesus had on the cross. He probably went into Isaiah and unpacked the suffering servant. He, he probably went to other scriptures where he, he said, look, this is where we see Christ and that he had to suffer and die. 
He made it understandable. And he placed it side by side. Here's the, if you could summarize it here, Paul made the scriptures clear. By the way, this is to be the goal of any teacher of God's word when he or she opens his mouth or her mouth. This is to be the goal when we open our mouth, period. A committed teacher or even follower of Jesus Christ is to make his word and his will clear. That, by the way, is the reason we exist, to bring glory to God, to deny ourselves and follow him, to open it up, to discuss it with people, to explain it to them. Here it is, and oftentimes that is, that is preceded by living it out in their lives. And to do it in a way that does not complicate the message further. I have a question for you, and I want you to answer this. How many here have ever received a backhanded compliment? Anyone at all? Backhanded compliment. When I say backhanded compliment, what are some words that come to your mind? What do I mean by that? Talk to me. Anyone at all? Oh, bless your heart. heart. Was that you, Grace? Yeah. When you hear, oh, bless your heart, what comes after that? Yeah, severe criticism, all right? When you hear backhanded compliment, what else comes to your mind? Anyone else? You meant well. You meant well, all right. Anyone else? I'm trying to wake you up, all right? Anyone else? No offense. No no offense. When someone says no offense, (laughs) buckle up. Buckle up. No offense. The other day I was walking with my wife and we, this has nothing to do with the message, by the way, but you made me remind it. So blame Hans. All right. We were walking with, uh, on, 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 uh, what are those things you walk on? They're concrete sidewalks. <laughs> and we came up to that one lady that we always talk to and they, we start talking and it's always the same. It instantly moves to complaining and you know, I didn't like this. And then she looked at us and she goes, I am not an angry woman. And Amy and I walked away. We said, you know, if you have to declare that you're not an angry person, you might be an angry person. Backhand, how about through insult? How many here have ever received an insult that someone meant as a compliment? Anyone at all? I had one of those. I get one of these every once in a while. It is the job of the child of God or the teacher of the word of God to make God's word clear. One of the most precious compliments I get from time to time is from is what you would call from from a backhanded compliment an insult. I have people who will come up to me, and in fact, I had this just last week, and they said, "Boy, we we enjoyed being at your church. I I go to such and such a church, and the the pastor there uses really big words, and I don't understand what he says, and he he's highly educated, and he's super smart, but you don't sound that way at all." True story. And I know what they're trying to say, but they stink at saying it. And I'm like, thank you. Or sometimes I say, oh, well, that makes me feel goody inside. You see, the goal of a pastor, the goal of the witness is to make the word of God clear and simple. I read from George Truitt. How many here love reading George Truitt? Anyone at all? How many here know George Trude exists? Anyone at all? All right, if you need to sleep, 
Recommend George? No, he's a good, he's a good writer. George Truett uh, made a good point this week when he said this. Maybe rather than the pastor saying, hence from my sight, nor let me pollute my eyes with looking on a stench like thee, I sicken at the loathsome presence of thyself. Maybe the pastor should just say, scram. Simplify. What I want you to see here is Paul's commitment in explaining and reasoning and dialoguing. And he did it for how many Sabbaths? Three Sabbaths in a row. It was not, by the way, it was not one and done. It was not one and done. He did not approach them with a one-shot and I'm out of here mentality. Kent Hughes says it well when he says this. In sharing the word of God, we must give others room and time to think. Let me say this a, a little bit differently, uh, maybe the way I would put it here, which is, 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 is synonymous to this thought. Here it is, I would say, it's, let's give the Holy Spirit time to work in people's lives. Show gracious patience. Let us remember how patient and how long-suffering our Lord is with us. The Holy Spirit doesn't give a rip about our daytimer in schedule. But here is where I think some teeth of what we see here in this text comes out on the issue of commitment. We're going to spend a little bit of time here, but not too much time. Here's where we start to see the teeth of his commitment. Not only is he being patient and giving others time to think. Can you hear Paul saying, you know what? Why don't we meet here again next Sabbath day? And saying again, you know what? Maybe let's meet again next Sabbath day. What are you doing on Thursday? What are you doing on Wednesday? I'm going to be over here. But he takes time with them. So he shows commitment there. Not only that commitment, but the three Sabbaths there. And he's reasoning and he's living it out and he's making it simple. And then on top of that, what I love here is this, his commitment to what he's saying. I would contend that one of the only cardinal sins left in our culture and world is that we are no longer allowed to offend anyone. And if anyone can, would agree with that, that we are not allowed to offend anyone, say amen. That is the cardinal law of the world. Now, please understand, we don't want to be offensive, but it's okay if someone is offended. There is a distinction between the two. I oftentimes call someone and say, I need your help with this. I I, I want to say this, and I know that it might offend someone, but I don't want to be the offense. I don't want to turn someone off because of the way I do it. The only cardinal sin left is we're not allowed to offend anyone. It's to the point now that you can't do anything because not only now, it's not that they get offended, it's that they even have, they can't even be triggered. How many here have ever heard the word triggered? How many here would agree some people have hair triggers? Some people don't even have hair triggers. They're just triggered. It's not even semi-automatic. Let's talk about guns, all right? This is just... He's triggered and offended. You cannot offend anyone unless, of course, if I may, unless, of course, you believe in Jesus Christ. You ever notice that? You have offended me as they curse the name of Jesus Christ in front of you. I just want to one of these days say, you're Christophobic. I just want to say that. Apparently, if you disagree with anything, you're, you're a phobic. Why not introduce Christophobic and watch their brain go <laughs> But I digress. In fact, 
I'm sure you've experienced this at work as well. If, if someone says, I'm offended, all intellectual and productive and constructive talk must end until that person no longer feels offended or is pacified. It's like the Trump card in our culture. And because I said Trump, I know some of you are now offended at that. <laughs> some of you are offended that I didn't say it earlier. It's a trump card that stops all communication that is not desired. And this has, by the way, this has seeped. Talking about commitment, you say, how in the world did we get to the trump card and all that stuff and offended and triggered? It's seeped, commitment seeped into the church today, if not niagara into the church as well. But look what Paul lovingly unpacks from the word of God. Check this out. Giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, we hear that today and go, yup. But let us remember who he's saying this to and where he is saying it. He is saying this in the synagogue to Old Testament believing Jews. Paul could not have started out, grab this, with a single more offensive subject than this. To Jews, this is utterly unacceptable. It is utterly offensive. The idea that the Messiah they were looking for would die on a cross for their sins could not be more offensive, could not be more insulting. They were looking for a conquering Messiah that would defeat their enemies and establish the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of God. Yes, this Messiah would provide salvation to some grafted in Gentiles, but not for Israel. Israel did not see themselves as sinner in need of salvation. They saw themselves as a chosen nation that is already set aside and saved by God. So this message here in the orange is horribly offensive. Yeah, look what he's talking about. And the thought that Israel would be the one that would kill their own Messiah is, is untenable. It is unthinkable. It is offensive. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, Christ crucified is a stumbling block for the Jews. It is a stumbling block for them. It is offensive to them. Paul went on to say in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Tell me, my friends, why would Paul, why wouldn't he market the word of God a little better? Why wouldn't he start with honey rather than vinegar? Why in the world is Paul week after week after week after week lovingly and faithfully unpacking and explaining and teaching what would offend them the most? Why not make it more palatable? Why not make it more marketable? Are you following where we're going, church? Why not make it more marketable, more acceptable, more inclusive? Why not take the crucified Messiah and teach about the water-walking Messiah? Both are true, are they not? Why not focus on the leper-cleansing, bread-multiplying, cool Jesus and just leave the suffering crucified Messiah that died for their sins out of the picture? Because after all, it's all true. It's just a matter of emphasis. By the way, that's the cool Jesus right there. 
It's just a matter of emphasis. Lord, help us. How many times I have heard this soft, cowardly lie. As I listen to sometimes my my brothers and sisters in Christ, of by the way, I have my own guilt on my own heart. There are times when I feel this in my own life as well. Where they have said around a, a conference table, it's not that we don't believe in sin or that we don't believe in the importance of repentance. We just choose to emphasize more positive things about Jesus Christ. My friends, that is tantamount to a doctor saying, yes, this patient has cancer, but we have chosen to emphasize his good cholesterol. Why not focus on the water walking, leper cleansing, bread multiplying Jesus over the crucified Jesus? One word, my friends, sin. Sin. Sin separates us from a holy God. Without the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, all other teaching is impotent. It's worthless. I'm not saying that we shouldn't teach all other subjects of the Bible. Of course we should teach the whole counsel of God. But ironically here, if I may, to ignore sin in order to avoid offending someone is by nature offensive to God. Yet the church has turned their pulpits and their pastors into life coaches that deliver more than than TED Talks on subjects that the listener might find appealing. And we do this to grow our numbers and our ledgers and our campuses. And we call it success. Have you ever noticed that today's church is allowed to talk about everything except what separates us from Christ? Because to tell someone that their, their sinful life is an offense to a holy God and they must repent is considered poor marketing. In fact, in getting to the point today, the only one that we are allowed to offend anymore in the church, the only one we are allowed to offend anymore is God himself. But why can't we just focus on God's love and His grace and His mercy and His faithfulness. Why didn't Paul just camp there? I'm sure Paul did in many ways. Why not focus on the love, grace, mercy, and faithfulness? Oh, my friends, we should. We should speak of them often. Let us sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Let us sing. But pray tell me, what amazing grace would we sing of if we didn't know how the wretch that we were? What faithfulness would we behold if we did not know how far we strayed? What mercy would we sing of if we didn't fully grasp the depth of our sin? Oh, you want to know why it's so easy for young people to drift from God so quickly? They have no comprehension of the depth of our depravity. In our desperate need for Jesus Christ, what depth of love would we cherish if we didn't understand the cost that he paid? 
My friends, the reason we must proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the reason we must call people to mourn and repent of their sins is because it is sin that separates us from the water-walking, leper-cleansing, bread-multiplying, purpose-giving Jesus. Oh, tell me, what good is it to teach about Jesus in a way that leaves the listener still separated from Him? Oh, for too long, the church has tried to turn its community upside down by using the cheap cheap toothpick of social awareness and self-improvement, rather the infinite soul-saving lever that is the death and cross of Jesus Christ alone. That's everything. It's everything. Everything else flows from that point. Let us stay committed to the gospel. His book, this life, this calling. There is, there is no cross to carry if we carve off everything that is difficult and offensive. And maybe today we have made the cross little more than two toothpicks easily discarded when something more exciting pops up. I'm going to go out on a limb here. If there's something more exciting, more precious, more valuable than taking your cross and following Christ, there is a larger question to ask. Do I belong to Him? I love this here. The law shows us the distance that exists between God and man. One sin... One sin. And there is an infinite chasm between an all-holy God and a desperate sinner. And the gospel bridges that awful chasm and it brings a sinner across it. And now I want to go to something a little interesting here. Notice it offends the religious community more quicker than the, just the world community. It offends the religious community faster as it does. Look at here. Look who really gets upset. The evil riffraff in the streets doing drugs got offended at the message of the cross. Is that what it says? Who got offended? Talk to me. The religious. I want to push it a little bit to the peripheral, but I think I'm still being faithful to the text. It could have said, but the Baptists, but the Methodists, but the Lutherans, and especially the Christian Reformed. I'm joking. I'm joking. My whole family is CR. I'm like the black sheep of the family. I left the faith. Even at family get-togethers, they sit the Baptists at the card table over there. And we judge them. Religious people. Religious people who do good works, are raised with values, have good intentions, attend church, and carry the scriptures, do not tolerate the thought that they are in need of salvation of their sins. But the rubric of examining our salvation isn't do I carry or do I know the scriptures? The rubric is am I carrying his cross? Notice something here. And I want to change gears just a little bit, but I want you to notice something here. I want to go to a practical application or or observation here. And we're going to end with a practical observation and application. We started out with the importance of commitment. Commitment to Christ. Commitment to share the gospel. The commitment to, to the message. And I want us to see an observation to encourage our commitment, if I could. 
in a way that we don't abandon it so easily. Look at here, it says this. Becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. Now, I like this here. These religious people partner with the worst of this world. Depending on your translations, and I know we have a lot of them here, here it says wicked men, but I want you to look at your text. Does your translation say anything other than wicked men? And if it does, and you're willing to talk, raise your hand. I want to see what word they have there. Here it's wicked men. Yes. Troublemakers. Troublemakers, Troublemakers. yes. What's that? Loafing troublemaking, wicked men. How about, yes, scoundrels. Any others? Yes. Bad characters. Is there another hand I saw here? Mike. Evil. Yes. Rufians. When's the last time you heard the word rufian or swimming trunks? Anyone at all? Make sure to bring your swimming trunks tonight. I don't know why I went there. Another translation here, riffraff. Another one, low lives. Notice who the religious community is willing to partner with in order to shut them up. To attack the gospel teaching man in, his, in the church he's starting, here it is, the religious people partner with the worst of this world. Ah, how many are glad that don't happen anymore? It's done and over with. One and done. They learned their lesson here. Where religious institutions that work with the ungodly or the world in order to maintain a seat at the table. Hmm. Church, answer this question. Do we see this maneuver today? Yeah. Yeah, we do. And notice what they did. This is an old and tired trick. You're going to see it again here. Notice what they did. And we need to see it. They formed a mob and set the city in a riot, in an uproar. And they attacked the house of Jason. How'd you like to be Jason? You know, knock at the door. Hello? Who is out there? Oh, several hundred men with pitchforks. I must have won the sweepstakes. By the way, Jason is just a, a name that many Dispora Jews would pick up. Um, when they were driven out of Israel and they leave there with their Jewish name and they enter into a Hellenistic culture and rather than their name sounding super Jewish, they would take the name Jason. And Jason would, would indicate that they are of, of Israel in many ways. In fact, you'll see Jason in Acts a couple times. And they come to Jason's home. Now hold on to this. Hold on to this. They start a riot. They start a mob. They partner with Tim, what was your name? What was the name? Rufians. They partner with the Rufians and the lowlifes and the loafers and the wicked men and they start a mob and a riot. There it is. Now with all that going on, as you see the smoke going up and the vending tables tipped over, they're chanting their message. Hold on to that picture and now bring in the accusation they get, go against Paul and Silas and Jason and the, and the embryonic church in Thessalonica. Love this. Take the accusation as they form a riot and they, and they accuse Paul. Look at these men who have upset the world, have come here. 
and they stirred up the crowd in the city and the authorities and heard these things. I want you to notice something here. The Jewish leaders form a mob, mob. They started a riot and they accused Paul and some poor guy by the name of Jason of being troublemakers. Are you seeing some dualism here? Irony here? Let me say this another way. They started a mostly peaceful protest to stop the intolerant, destructive Christians. There is nothing new under the sun. Nothing. You smell that? Stinks. And with the vendors' tables overturned and smoke and fire billowing in the air in the background with people filled with rage and pitchforks in the air, they proclaim with all sincerity, Paul's a troublemaker. You can't even find Paul right now. How much? You can't find the guy. This is an old and tired tactic, and it still happens today. And it is blatantly obvious to those who have any intellectual integrity. The world will often attack Christianity and the church with accusations that are most true about themselves. Now, I had a little fun with this. Paul's an existential threat. Have we heard that today? Paul is xenophobic. There's only one mob that's trying to run someone out because they're from another land with another belief. And then my favorite, common sense pitchfork reform. And they're all holding pitchforks. Not too long ago, a young lady who was working for a government subsidized progressive agency who was being paid for and worked to help move the poor um, in their tents one day, said in righteous indignation, where is the church? Where is the church helping the poor? And condemned the church for their lack of love and assistance to the poor and the needy and the infirmed. And she actually said something like this, I didn't see a single church show up to the work day. May I? Scratch an itch. If you would allow me to scratch an itch, would it be okay if I defended the church for a moment? Is that okay? And by, by the way, I don't just mean Trinity Baptist Church. I mean the church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ. As a pastor and a servant of the church, with a three-fourths majority vote, all those that are willing to allow me to defend the church just for a moment from all the accusations that are ironically true about the world more than it is about the church, if I could just defend the church, signify by saying amen. Okay. That was 76%. Where is the church? On this day, we help the poor. To that I say, in love, open your eyes. In every direction, in every facet, you see the church of Jesus Christ. Christian hospitals erected to help the sick and the infirmed. 
There is a reason all these medical places are called Trinity Medical Center. That's not a, they didn't pick that out of the air. Or Baptist Memorial Hospital or St. Mercy and Mary's and everyone else or Lutheran. There are nearly, did you know I looked this up, there are nearly 730 faith-based hospitals in the United States today. 730 that started from Christian roots and started by the church. For fun, I just typed in how many churches have been started by atheists of America today. (laughs) Now, I didn't spend a lot of time in this. One. One. So I clicked on it. And it was like this paragraph, and it says there is actually one church started by atheists, and it is known for their subpar care. And it was a secular website. So it must be true. Just sharing with you what I read. 730 of them started by churches and Christians. Could you point me to one Marxist medical center? Please point me to one shelter for the needy erected by the donations in the time of atheists of America. You ask, where are the Christians? Where is the church? Well, they are building and serving in countless homeless shelters to feed the needy. Pregnancy centers for mothers. Uh, community kids centers for the underprivileged youth. There are counseling centers to help the mentally poor. Skill centers to help the unemployed. Disaster relief ministries, adoption agencies, orphanages, schools and colleges in every direction. Mostly funded by the sacrificial giving of untold amounts of volunteer hours every month of every day. Many without receiving a single dollar of government funding. And in the name of Christ, they do this every day without any press and any reward or any cameras or, or any pension. And with love, here you are, supported with our tax money, for one day, condemning the church for their lack of involvement. Oh, with love, maybe you didn't see the church arrive because the church has already been there long before you ever stepped foot here. Where is the church? Throw a rock in any direction, and you will hit the church. But I see we're already doing that. My point is this. Stop letting the world control the narrative. Their father, the devil, is a liar, you know. The true church of Jesus Christ has done more for mankind than any other institution this world has ever seen. And here they create a riot and they say Paul and Jason are causing trouble. Today the world says there is no room for intolerance as they reject anyone who disagrees with their platform. It screams for equity and cuts off the legs of anyone who does not stand in line. Paul sat and reasoned for three Sabbaths The crowd started riots, and Paul is the troublemaker. The church wants to talk, the world wants to silence, and we are called intolerant. The church longs for the truth, the world says there is none, and we are called uninformed. God is the God of order, the world embraces chaos, and believers are called unsophisticated. My friends, just because the world says something, and everyone around them gets in line, 
does not mean they're right, even, pray tell, here you are, even if they begin to shout it. Commitment. Give us his word. And here is why. Because faith comes from hearing. And hearing from the word of God. The only thing that can bring faith is found in this book. This is the only lover that can move the world. It is the only lover that can bring and lead us to salvation. May we commit ourselves today. So much so that nothing else in this world would ever draw us away from it. And speaking of commitment, let's do some baptisms tonight where we publicly commit and identify that we belong to Jesus Christ. And here it is, dead to ourselves, alive in Christ. It is no longer I that live, but Christ in me. And as Billy Bass would say, I'll see you at the river. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection. Father, may we be committed to your truth. And Father, we pray these things and we ask them in your son's precious name. Amen. I love you guys. You are dismissed.